from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Those who trust in their riches will wither, but the righteous will flourish like green leaves. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your Son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name we ask of it. Amen. Well, today we embark on a four-week sermon series that corresponds with our 2017 annual campaign. The title of the series is Telling a different story. Telling a different story. The initial idea for this series came to me while I was attending a plenary section, a session rather, uh, at the Festival of Homiletics. Now for those who don't know that word, homiletics is a fancy word for preaching. There's a festival every year. It's a nationwide festival. It moves from city to city. And in this past May, it was held here in Atlanta. And so I attended some of the sessions, this this plenary session, a man by the name of Dr. David Lowe's was presenting. Dr. Lowe's is the president of the Lutheran Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And he was encouraging the preachers in the room, about a thousand of us, encouraging us that preaching principally is about telling the story of God, telling the story of God in the face of the prevailing and dominant stories told in the world. He said, I want to encourage you to think about the preaching moment in light and in the shadow of these prevailing secular stories. I want you to think about proclaiming the gospel, knowing full well that there are other stories vying for your congregation's attention. Other stories vying for their allegiance. Among the many stories that are told, he said, four rise to the very top. Four secular stories that prevail in our time and in our place. The first story, you are what you own. You are what you own. The second story, image is everything. The third story, there is not enough. And the fourth story, you should be afraid. You are what you own. Image is everything. There is not enough. And you should be afraid. Dr. Lowe suggested that these four stories reign in our culture, in our time. And I would suggest that these stories are principally communicated through mass media 
and what I would call the industrial marketing complex. Dr. Lowe's challenged the preacher to tell a different story. The story of the gospel, which counters the narratives of materialism, image, scarcity, and fear with good news, right? Gospel means good news. A good news story that roots our sense of self in the lordship, the acceptance, the abundance, and the love of God. Now the task of telling a different story, of course, is not reserved for preachers. The task of telling a different story belongs to anyone who bears the name Christian, who dare confesses this Jesus to be Lord, who seeks to follow them, him in their everyday life. This past week, our family uh, spent a few days in Disney for fall break, and while waiting online two hours, we did not have fast pass. While waiting online for two hours for test track, the race car attraction at Epcot, you know, Disney's figured this out, right? They, they create these, these lines, like, like cattle moving through these lines, and you feel like you're gaining ground, when in actuality you're just moving in a circle. But they've also decided to use technology and they, they put video boards up and, and they play little games on your phone. This sensory overload so you don't realize that you're waiting in line for two hours for a single ride. And there was a video playing at Test Track. It's sponsored by uh, the car maker Chevrolet. And as part of the video, they have some car designers. And I found something to be exceptionally compelling spoken by one of these car designers. He said every car that is manufactured, every car that is designed begins with a single line. Begins with a, a single line. They showed a sketch pad. They showed one of these designers drawing a single line to begin to outline the top of the body of a car. Every car is imagined and designed first with, with a single line. And that line said the designer, will dictate what that car will become. A single line, one line, will begin the process of shaping that car, of what it will look like. I would suggest that our sense of self, our sense of self, our core identity has a principal line. It has a first line. And that first line is a storyline. And that storyline will dictate and shape our life. That first line will dictate and shape our life. Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesmott are Biblical scholars, they wrote a commentary together on the book of Colossians, and in it they make the argument that the book of Colossians really is a worldview book. They believe that the author who penned Colossians intended to shape this Christian community in such a way 
to gain a particular perspective, to embrace a particular worldview. Remember, this Christian community is living as a marginalized and minority community in the shadow of Judaism and in the shadow of Rome. And part of what we heard today from Colossians 3, 1 to 4, is part of this world-shaping view. Set your minds, says the writer, on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and not things below. Now in our hearing and in our time, this may not seem that subversive, but as a marginal and minority community, to adopt and embrace a worldview like this one would put their very lives at risk. Because to say that Jesus Christ is above anything, anything, would be outside of the storyline that was being told in culture. Particularly in the Roman story, a story that says we will keep the peace as long as people affirm that Caesar is Lord. There is nothing above Caesar. Caesar is above all. But this worldview, this storyline, subverts that story and says, no, Jesus is above all others. And don't just think about geographical space here. Don't just think spatially here. That, that, that Jesus is up above in heaven and we should focus on that and not the things of the earth. Because the things of earth still matter. Material matters to God. This is also about, about rank. This is about where Jesus ranks in your worldview. Is he above all others or is something else? In the shadow of Judaism... Jesus is considered a failed revolutionary at best and at, at worst an exposed blasphemer. So to say that Jesus is above puts the people at risk from a religious political perspective. But this worldview that, that the writer of Colossians is presenting is one that, 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 that subverts the dominant storyline of their time. That Jesus Christ is Lord, and no one is above him. What is more, says the writer, the Christian is hidden in this Lord. Isn't that a beautiful image? Hidden in Christ, says the writer. You know, we're exposed to so much out in the world, right? We're exposed to so much, and there's, there's a certain measure of vulnerability that we have in this world that is that is physically and spiritually violent and, and corrupt and uneasy and easily shaken. And we're exposed to that. And, and, and all of these things are vying for our allegiance, vying for the, the chance to define our identity. And here the writer says, you are hidden in Christ. What a beautiful image that is. That who we are at the core our identity is, is found in the very person of Christ. Sense of self, sense of purpose, our ethics, our personal mission is shaped by this hiddenness. Later on in Colossians, the writer says that we are citizens not of this kingdom. This is Colossians 3.14. We're citizens not of this kingdom, but we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And that citizenship 
carries its own storyline. It's a storyline that puts Jesus above all things and calls people to root their identity, who they are, in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And so this question that is, is basically posed to the Colossians is really the question that is anchoring our sermon series. What is the first line for you? What storyline shapes your life? What storyline shapes my life? In light of this question, we will be taking on these four dominant stories, these four prevailing stories. And in the, in the first one, we, we take on this story of you are what you own. You are what you own. Rent, the musical, put it in a, in a lovely way, in a great song, right? At the last end of the last century, before we got into the 2000s, when you're living in America at the end of the millennium, you are what you own. You are what you own. Now, I want to take a poll. I know there's a lot of polls out there. This is not of the political kind. I want to take a poll, okay? Show of hands. I really want you to raise your hands. By show of hands, how many of you believe, how many of you believe that relationships are more valuable than possessions? Raise your hand if you believe that. Now, keep them up. Look around. Look around, everybody. Okay? Another one. Pay, pay close attention to the way the question's phrased. By a show of hands, how many of you believe that possessions cannot produce sustained happiness? Cannot produce sustained happiness? Put your hands up. Everybody look around. Okay? We don't need to take a count here. As the moderator, I declare that the motion passes. <laughs> right? The visual is compelling. The vast majority of us are convinced that relationships are more valuable than possessions and that possessions cannot produce sustained happiness. We believe that. And yet there is an asymmetry, isn't there, with what we believe and how we live. I wonder if we conducted a different poll. I'm not asking you to raise your hands. I don't want anybody to, to out themselves here. Don't do that. This is between you and God and the people you intimately do faith and life with. Do not raise your hand, okay? But take a different stock, a different account of your own life. How, how many of us worry about money regularly? How much we have or how much we think we need? How many of us are in serious, serious debt? How many of us fight about money with our spouse or family members? How much time do we commit to thinking about or buying stuff or buying experiences? I mean, how much time are we on the internet looking to buy something? How many of us entangle our sense of accomplishment or our sense of adequacy, or our sense of self-worth, our own identity, entangle it to material possessions of what money can buy. How many of us buy things not for their usefulness or utility, but buy them because they represent something to you, or they are a symbol to somebody else? How many of us seriously question the rat race we run and wonder if life has a purpose beyond the accumulation of more stuff? How many of us no longer see our work as purposeful 
or meaningful or even dignified beyond work's capacity to give us a paycheck. For many of us, if we are honest, there is a contradiction at times with what we believe, with what we aspire to, and how we actually live. We just saw it. The majority of us aspire to a sense of self that is principally defined by something other than our worth, our financial worth, our bank accounts, our stuff, or where we spent last year's spring break. And yet the time and energy we spend in our day-to-day lives in pursuit of or in conversations about these things betray those aspirations. You are what you own. I don't think I have to convince you that this story dominates in the world. That is the secular story. If the Enlightenment identity was marked by Rene Descartes' famous line, I think, therefore I am, maybe those of us living in the first quarter of the 21st century, our philosophy is rooted in this idea that I buy, therefore I am. I consume, therefore I am. That is a prevailing story, isn't it? But there is a different story to tell. It's actually a good news story. It's a gospel story. And traces of this story are found in the book penned by King Solomon. His book of wisdom called Proverbs 11, verse 28. Those who trust in riches will wither, but the righteous will flourish like green leaves. I want to be focused here. I'll be very clear about this. I alluded to this earlier. Riches and wealth And the material world, material possessions are not evil. They are not sinful in and of themselves. That's not what the wisdom is calling out. God actually cares about the material world. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a resurrection of the body from the dead. Material matters to God. But it's where we put our trust. The wisdom is is clear The one who withers is the one who trusts in wealth. The one who withers is the one who trusts in stuff. And this withering, this withering, this decay, this decline is made known and made manifest in so many different ways. You've seen them, right? I mean, I've had conversations in in pastoral contexts and settings. I've had people whose marriages have ended whose relationships with their children has been decimated, with with people who acted unethically and illegally. I've stood behind them in a courtroom. People whose, whose lives have been shattered, who have been left alone, left wanting for more, left unfulfilled, all because they pursued a trust in their stuff. They found their identity in their wealth, in their possessions. I do not have to tell any more stories. You've seen it. Maybe you've seen it in your own life where the ground begins to shake under you. And all this trust and all this identity formation that we've leaned on into our stuff and into our wealth and into material possessions, it begins to to unravel, it begins to decay, it begins to wither. There's good news, right? There's still good news to come. The second part of that verse, 1128. 
It says the one who grows and flourishes is the one called righteous. And I want to be clear about this point too. I want to be clear about what righteous means. You know, when you look at the scriptures, scriptures are very clear. Only God is righteous, right? Scriptures are very clear. It says only God is righteous. And yet, and yet, God in God's grace and generosity bestows upon us a righteousness that is found in Christ. This is what it means to be hidden in Christ, that we are called righteous, not because of anything we've done, but because of God's divine gift of grace and love. That we are righteous, not because we're holier than thou, and not because we're pretentiously pious. We are righteous because of what God has done in and as Jesus Christ. That's who we are. That is our identity. And the one who is righteous, I would suggest to you, is the one who simply receives that gift of grace. That's the one who's righteous. The one who trusts that their identity is shaped in Christ. That the principal line of their life is that they are beloved child, a son, a daughter of the living God. That's what it means to be righteous. And so we, we, we come to the end of this first week and we're, we're asked a question that's, that's framed in this, in a very clear way. Are we what we own? Or are we something else? Are we defined not by what we own, but, but in our hiddenness in Christ, by the righteousness that God has bestowed upon us in God's grace? I'll leave you with this. There are many ways, I think, there are many ways, many ways to bear witness to a trust in God over and against a trust in our stuff. There are many ways to do that. But since we are in annual campaign season, I want to speak directly about our time and our place Sacrificial giving, when we give to the church, is not done out of guilty obligation, but it's done in response to the gifts of grace that God has poured out upon us. Not to get more of it. This isn't a prosperity gospel where you give and you get. It's a response to what God has given, something that is unmatched, something that we could never repay. The gift of salvation in this life and in the life to come. And God's pattern is generosity. I mean, just read the scriptures. God's pattern is generosity. It's a pattern that culminates in the giving of God's son for the world. And we respond in many different ways. But one way, we respond with sacrificial financial generosity. Now, one of the ways that the ancient people of God, the ancient community of Israel, responded to God's fidelity and generosity. A way that they demonstrated their trust was to give away their first 10% of what they earned. It's called a tithe. Anybody ever heard that word before? It's called a tithe. 10% of the first fruit of the land, 10% of what was earned as a demonstration of trust to say, I can let this go and give it to God and give it to God's work. Give it to God's work in telling a different story in and for the world. It's a discipline that says, God, I, I trust that my identity is not rooted in this stuff that I can just give away. 
It's rooted in you, and I'm free then. I'm liberated then to give that away. Now, I want to say something that may land as a bit of a challenge for many of us this morning. I believe that over 90% of us, maybe 99% of us, can afford to tithe. Very practically speaking. Can afford to tithe 10% of what we earn or what we receive in our retirement to the church. 10%. Well, how does that happen? For some of us, we're doing the math in our head. The math has to change vis-a-vis what we spend our money on, what we prioritize. Affording the 10% is possible. Whether we want to do it or not, that's another sermon. But it's possible. We can afford 10% to the work and witness of the church. We can afford that. The vast majority of us. But here's the challenge. In my experiences, when people come to this season, this pledge season, many of us, and I don't mean this in a critical sense, I'm trying to be as descriptive as possible, but in the conversation and and doing enough of these kinds of campaigns, and you, you start reading the pledge cards, you realize that there is an unintentionality about the numbers that are put down on the paper. Right? Because usually, a lot of people, right, the numbers are divisible by 12. Right? $1,200 equals $100 a month. There it is. Right? Or they're just nice and neat, like $1,200 with zeros on the end. But the biblical principle, the witness, is 10% of, of what you earn. And, and, and so for some of us, what, what needs to happen in this season, I think, and I'd encourage us to think about this, is to just approach it with some measure of intentionality. Do you follow me? Don't just pick some number randomly out of the air. 5,000, that sounds good. But think critically. Think critically. Think proportionally. And maybe 10% would be a, a huge leap of faith for you. Well, start with 3%. If you're already at 3%, go to 4 right? Or go to five. But think proportionally. And not only think proportionally, but think about first and best. Think about first and best. You know, Jesus ranks, says the scriptures, above all else. One of the things that Katie and I have committed to is that our commitment, financial commitment to this church will always be the first and the best So if I were to ask you, you know, when you look at your philanthropic life, your charitable life, where does the church rank? Is it in the top 10? Is it in the top three? Is it the first and best? Somebody asked me after the last service, 11 o'clock always gets the questions of the first services. That's why these sermons are a little longer. (laughs) You know, is it it 10% to the church or 10% just to God's work in the world. Now, I'm the preacher of this church, right? What am I going to say? You know? well, and, but the biblical principle, in all sincerity, the biblical principle is, yeah, it's, it's 10% to the life of the church, of the community of faith. That's the principle. And so what I'm asking for us all to do, including our own family, the Sundermeyer household, is to think critically 
about sacrificial giving and to think critically about proportional giving, to think critically about what does it mean to put this storytelling community as the first and best when it comes to our financial generosity. My hope and my prayer is that every investment that we make in the life of this church promotes telling a different story in and for the world. For friends, we are not what we own. We are the Lord's. Amen.